Praise the Lord. John chapter 21, 18 through 25, our last eight verses of the book of John. I think I'm um, 98 sermons in the book of John. So you should um, clap for yourselves that you made it through it. <laughs> uh, only three and a half years, um, but we have enjoyed it. We've had several big breaks during that, but um, I have learned so much, and I trust you have too. Let's see what John finishes telling us of our glorious Christ. John chapter 21, verse 18 through 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying but what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and the one who had leaned, on, leaned back on the bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? This is the disciple who has testified to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there also were many other things which Jesus did, which, he, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of John. We are grateful for the entire 66 books of the Bible, all inspired by the Holy Spirit. Men moved along every jot and tittle from God. But we especially thank you for the book of John, Lord. It has taught us to love your son. It has taught us to see him as Messiah and son of God. It has taught us to understand that he is God and only he could rescue us. And so, Lord, we are grateful for this teaching that we have all engaged in. And Lord, as we bring this conclusion, Lord, may we... Um, not just dismiss these truths spoken to Peter here. But these are challenges for us, Lord. How will we die for Christ? How will we follow, Lord? What will be said of us in the end? So Lord, may we run well and finish well for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I entitled the sermon, Will You Follow Jesus? Will you follow Jesus? What a, uh, I think, a very good term or title for the entire book. Um, it's fascinating. We, as we spent time of Christ working away to the cross, many times I remember saying this in many different sermons, that Christ knew how he was going to die. And then we thought about that. We, we talked about that a little bit, and we contemplated that thought. He knows how he's going to die. I don't know how you would do with that, but 
I don't, I'm glad I don't know how I'm going to die. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I don't know how that will happen or when that will happen. My mom always says, I want to die in my afternoon nap. I say, Mom, I, I hope that happens. <laughs> but then we come to this text here. And I want to explain it and show it to you that it's actually a text revealing how Peter is going to die. It seems um, a little ambiguous, but it actually is a very good text, particularly in the original language of understanding that Peter was going to die in a certain way. And I could not think of anybody else in the Bible who was told how they were going to die and actually know how they're going to die outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, Peter. And then as the week went on and I began to unpack this and study it, it began to marvel at Peter how well he ran. And he ran right to the end, even though he was going to die a death of a martyr. And not an easy death, probably physically worse than what the Lord went through. So I was greatly encouraged by Peter. And we remember last week was the great restoration of Peter. Jesus challenged him on his love for him. He showed him that his love was not what Peter said it was, and Peter agreed, my love is not that type of love. It is more of an affectionate love. I know I do not agape you yet, Lord. And our Lord kindly and gently brought Peter along. And when it was all said and done, he says, you go shepherd my sheep, the ones that have heard my voice, and I've called them, and I've gathered them. You go care for them. There was just a little bit of work to do left here in Peter. And John graciously records this for us so we can know how this all ended. And I think there's some great challenges for us in this. I know it challenged me and I pray it'll challenge you this morning. So three thoughts that we'll look at as we close out the book of John. One, is there a cost to following Jesus? Is there a cost to following Jesus? I think today in modern Christianity, that's probably not spoken too much. It's something that, hey, believe in Jesus. You can have all your dreams. You can have everything you want. In fact, if you read much of the prosperity gospel that flies around out there, the only reason that you can't have it is because of your faith. And that's not true. Jesus, from the beginning, has said, there is a great cost to following me. Will you take up your cross and come after me? And Peter is going to be the example of that for us. He's going to live out Matthew 10, Matthew 18, Luke 11, Luke 9, John 19. He's going to live these out where Jesus says, you must take out your cross. And he's going to do it in front of the early church to set an example. And so these are precious passages. As I wept, as I studied them, I realized, wow, the Lord really did take a man who was not perfect he was perfectly saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was a man who struggled and wanted to follow the Lord, and God restored him and used him greatly. So is there a cost? Well, Jesus starts it out in verse 18. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, um, interpret it, I'm telling you the truth, is what Jesus is saying. And so he's speaking, as he always speaks, a truism to Peter. Peter needs to hear this. When you read verse 18, it, it does seem ambiguous that it isn't quite as clear. Let me read it again. It says, when you, are young, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. You, you had freedoms. You could go to and fro. You could do what you wanted to do. But when you grow old, and then here's the terms here that 
that are interesting and have to be studied, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you, a very key word, and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, if we only read verse 18, we would think, well, maybe he's going to a rest home. I, I mean, if you didn't read 19 in the English, I'm not sure I would get it because 19 says this, John says this, now this, was, now this he said, Jesus said this, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God when he had spoken this, he said, follow me. Now there's a little phrase in 19 that is important. What kind of death he would glorify God. That's a pretty fascinating little phrase there. You mean to tell me that death can bring glory to God? Will your death bring glory to God? I've had the privileges of being at births and being at deaths. Comes with a ministry. And I've watched deaths that weren't very glorifying to the Lord. And I've seen deaths so precious that they're etched in my mind of how that person went to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all of them sweetly with flowers laying on their chests with their family adorning them. Some in great, great suffering. But holding, holding to being a follower of Jesus to their last breath. Now see, when you see that, you go, Lord, let me go that way. Let me put you first, even all the way to death. And I think this is what Peter does. These phrases here in verse 18 take you where you don't want to go, stretch out your hands, gird you. These were terms um, that have a little more strength in the original meeting and particularly to the early church. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said this. He says, this passage tells us, and he taught this to the early church, that Peter was crucified in Rome by Nero. And he, see, he sees, Tertullian saw the crucifixion fulfillment in the words about being girded by another person. And there's references to early church writings that I took that out of. Eusebius, another early church father, reported that by his own request, from this text, Peter asked to be crucified head down. Another quote out of early church writings that I found that one in. So though we look at this and we go, I'm not sure what that means, verse 19 tells us that Peter was gonna die a death that brought glory to the Lord. It is only their early church history that tells us that Peter did not want to be crucified right. They said, you love Jesus so much, we'll kill you like we killed him. He said, please, please turn me upside down. And they did from what history tells us. Peter died a death glorifying to the Lord. I don't know what was said there, but I can imagine studying First and Second Peter um, and teaching through those books at one time in my ministry that Peter, to the, to the last death, last, the last words of his mouth was exalting Christ in some way. I'm gonna show you some of those words that he wrote to us towards the end of his life. But I think he finished well, and I think he did just what Jesus said, the signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. Notice it's a statement, he would do this. He would die in a glorifying way. His life would be dedicated to God. And with all that end of that, Jesus says, follow me, follow me. Now these are not new terms to Peter. Peter has heard this. In fact, this phrase, follow me, is what we call a present tense imperative, meaning 
continually keep doing what you're doing, keep doing it, finish all the way to the end. This isn't a suggestion, this is a command. Keep running, finish well, follow me, Peter, Simon, my son. Look at Matthew chapter 10. These are all phrases, passages that, that Peter was here, he heard this teaching. I want you to understand this isn't new to him. It maybe didn't make as much sense before the death and burial resurrection, but now this stuff starts to come back in Peter. And when you study the book of First and Second Peter, you start hearing this stuff come out in his messages that we're gonna read here. Matthew chapter 10, starting verse 24, is a description of what discipleship looks like. And when you read that, you go, oh, hey, this is gonna be neat. We're followers of Jesus. We're all happy. Everything's great. Our family loves us. Yeah, it's very different than that. Follow along as we read verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciples that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Uh Uh-oh. This isn't going to be all that easy. They called Jesus Satan. And he's saying, look, if the head is called that, guess what they're going to do to you guys? Verse 26, therefore do not fear them, for there's nothing concealed that they, that, that, Uh, will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. This is an encouraging verse. Look, I see all this. I am noting it. They will be judged for it. It will be revealed someday. Trust in me. This is that idea. Follow, follow, follow. Verse 27. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. There was a lot of things that Jesus shared with his disciples that he did not share with others, but now they were to spread that news. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Peter says that we are to boldly proclaim the glories of the one who called us out of darkness. He took that exact passage and shot it out in his, in his first epistle. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I think these words were not spoken publicly. I think he's speaking to Peter and the disciples here. Verse 29, he wants them to remind them he's, he's with them. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. It's gonna be tough, Peter. It's gonna be tough, disciples. I know when a sparrow hits the deck, oh, you are so much more important to me than that. See how he gives him a, a very... Almost difficult passage, but then he encourages them. And he keeps doing that on down through here. Verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now he goes back to some more difficult stuff. Verse 32, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. That is wonderful. If you've confessed Jesus as your Savior, Jesus himself confesses you to the Father. Father, I've died for this person. Here they are. Isn't that amazing? Gives you courage to go on with this suffering. Verse three, but whoever denies me, Jesus speaking here, before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. 
Maybe that's part of the many, many will say, oh, I've done this and I've done that. Jesus may say, no, he has denied me, Father. I I don't know how that's all going to work, but that's what the verse says. Verse 34, it's a little more difficult here, Peter and apostles. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wait a minute. This isn't the Jesus taught on TV. Where's the good guy? Shadowed with the big red heart behind him. This is a bit different. What happens to swords? Swords divide, swords cut, swords kill. There is, there is some heavy stuff here. Look what happens with this sword, verse 35. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemy will be the members of his household. Now that isn't the case in everybody's household, but I promise you in a lot of households it is. I have had the privilege both in America and around the world to meet people that say I am completely 100% rejected from my family because I'm a follower of Jesus. I remember meeting um, the secretary of grace to you in Pune, India. Um, I began just talking with her. English was good and we had a conversation while I was waiting to speak one time over there and I said, well, tell me about your testimony and she began to tell me, she said, Pastor Scott, I, I, somebody evangelized me when I was um, just newly married. I had only been married two years. I was pregnant with our first daughter and I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and she gave great glory to Christ. He saved me out of Hinduism. Um, I was completely lost and he rescued me out of that. And she, for a long time, just gave praise to Jesus, praise to Jesus. And then I finally said, what does that look like in your family? And she said, well, it changed everything. I was six months praying with our daughter, and they threw me, literally threw me out on the street. And in India, if you abandon the Hindu faith and go to particularly Christianity, you are as dead to them. I said, well, what does that look like? She goes, it looks like this. I walk down the street and my mother, my father, my in-laws, my ex-husband, doesn't matter, and I'm with my daughter walking down the street. They walk by me as though I am not, not there. Hmm. A little bit of division in that family, wouldn't you say? You and I know how difficult it is to follow Jesus with unsaved family members. It's not easy. Thanksgivings can be rough. <laughs> you have to gear up for Thanksgiving. Kids, we're going to Thanksgiving. It could get a little bumpy. But let's be, let's be testimonies to Jesus. See, Peter knew this. This is not new to him. Jesus had told him, and this is starting to flood in, what the cost of following the Lord Jesus is. Verse 37 gets rougher. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is not saying don't love your wife or your children or your mother. That's not what he's saying. But he says, I must be protos. I must have first place. I must be preeminent in order for you to follow me. Now just think about that. If he isn't first place, how do you follow him? If he's second or third or lost in the mix, how can you follow him? Well, I have allegiance to this. I know my follower. See how you can't stay on track? 
So it's a very, very true verse that Peter heard. Verse 38, and he who does not take up his cross, now here's the words, and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Well, maybe you're here today and you go, well, isn't this to the apostles? He's not talking to me. Well, I think he is talking indirectly to you. We are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We say, okay, all right, well, what does the New Testament say about it? Let me just read you some verses that help you figure this out, that this is applied. The apostles took this right into the teaching to the early church. Romans chapter 14, seven through eight, listen. For not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us dies for himself. For if we die, we die for the Lord. And if we die, we die, excuse me, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. I think that's exactly what Matthew chapter 10 is talking about. Given to the early church to follow him. Paul later said, for me to live is Christ to die as gain. Who are you following? This is, these are good questions for us. We have to wrestle with this because I think we fall out of fellowship every once in a while. New word, somebody write that down. There's times we get a little bit lost. Do you lose your salvation? No, the Bible says we can't be plucked out of the hand of God if we truly belong to him. But our fellowship falls apart every once in a while. Priorities get out of whack. We love these things. Remember last week? Do you love me more than these things? Those things get in the way. And we start to love those things and not take care of the following of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I don't know if I like this suffering. Well, buckle up, folks. Christianity is going to get bumpy from here on out in America. It's not going to get better. It's going to get more difficult. And Peter wrote this, knowing this. He said this in 1 Peter 2.21. Just listen to the words of a man who, who was going to his death for Jesus. He said this, For you, plural, all of us, have been called for this purpose. He's a whole context of suffering. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Following Christ is costly. Boy, does it have a great reward, though. In the end, like Peter, you stand and he says, enter in, my beloved. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. Enter into my rest. Oh, I want to hear those words. I really do. And I know, as I studied out Peter's life, that he heard those words. And you'll meet him someday. And we'll have great conversations about our same Lord that we follow. Go back to our text in John chapter 21 and let's think about another thought here. Each Christian must learn to submit to Christ's plan for his life. Each Christian must learn to submit to Christ's plan for our individual lives. We all, God has a plan for individually for all of us. It corporately comes together on mornings like this and we corporately serve the Lord in many ministries together. But God has an individual plan for everyone in this room. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has a plan for your life, believe it or not. But sometimes we don't like that plan. In verse 20, God uses Peter to show us our own hearts. 
Verse 20, Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. John wants to make sure you know, he knows it's, it's him without saying his name. The one who had leaned back on the bosom, at, the bosom of Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? We all know that was John. In verse 21, so Peter seeing him, I mean, apparently they've got up from breakfast, they've eaten, they've had this discourse between Christ and Peter of restoring him and they're maybe walking down the beach now. And Peter says to him, this one back here, he's coming along, he's, John's walking and hearing this conversation, and he says, Lord, what about this guy? I really like that phrase. Because that's us, right? Oh, Lord, man, come on. Is this, do I have to go through this alone? I think Peter's showing us that our flesh just fights following Jesus sometimes. And I think more, probably more poignant is our flesh likes to always point out when we don't think something's fair. Right? That's not fair. And so after Jesus has told Peter continually to follow him, keep present continually following me, Peter wants to know what's going to happen to John. John was part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He was saying, hey, look, John's a right-hand guy too. What's gonna, how is he going to die? I, wanna, I found out how I'm going to die. How about this guy? Does he get to die like I apparently get to die? And it's so much like us. We worry about what only God knows. We worry about what only God knows. And I think he's a good example of that and reminds us we need to trust the Lord. Verse 22, Jesus says to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Present imperative tense, you follow me, Peter. Jesus quickly reminds Peter to focus on his own life. Focus on your own walk. And he repeats this command again, follow me, follow me, Peter. Verse 23, therefore the saying went out among the brethren that that this disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say that. It isn't John, look at he's clarifying this. He wants to squash this rumor that he would not die, but that only if Jesus wanted him to remain until, what is that to you? I have a plan for you. I have a plan for John. Let me do the estate planning, Right? He he's wants, and we're so much that way. We want to go, well, this isn't fair. And what about this guy? And, 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 and no, Jesus says, look, I have an individual plan for you. And we must trust the Lord in that. Look at a couple passages that just came to mind as I was studying this. First Thessalonians chapter four. Right before you get to Timothy, where we read, um, turn back and hit first Thessalonians chapter four. We tend to want to worry about others within the church. And if we can just all do what God calls us to do individually, what a, what a wonderful church that would look like, right? And I think we're working on that and doing those things. But if we all do that, gossip will go away and worrying about everybody else's job and, and, and we'll all be at hard at work at the things God has for us. And, and this has not been new to us. It's certainly the early church struggle with this. Look at First Thess 4, 9. Now, to, now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. So this is a loving group, right? For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it towards all brethren who are in Mesopotamia, 
um, excuse me, Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. I like that. He says that several times in this book. Excel still more. Do more, go farther, love more, be the kind of people that love Christ. We look at verse 11 and 12. And make it your ambition. Make it your goal, your direction, to leave a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we command you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. So there's this command even to the early church to to excel towards loving one another, excel to what God has given you. Live that quiet life that's doing what God has called you to do, whatever that is. Moms, dads, husbands, wives, children, engineers, teachers, I mean, whatever you are, whatever God has you doing, he has set you on that path. Be disciplined. See that as God's calling in your life till he changes that calling. Serve him. Be a part of a group of people right here at the church. Love one another and excel more at it each time you get the opportunity. This is what he tells the church to do. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's over a couple of books. And I bring this passage up because the early church kind of stumbled over this passage that w- where Jesus said, look, if I want him to live till I come back, um, that's up to me. And, and John has to correct because people love to read things into scriptures. We don't want to read things. And, and Jesus, uh, John corrects, his, uh, corrects what people were thinking. He says, if he wanted him, that's good exegesis to see that one verb. He said if he wanted him, not that he was going to do it. So we must hear and read the entire text. Look at verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. You've been given a a job by God. You've accepted that job. Mom, dad, husband, wife, child, uh, work, play, whatever that is, you've been given this job. Don't be ashamed. Don't be a workman who's ashamed of what you've done. You've, you've taken what God has given you and you're working at it. You're not perfect, but God is bringing you along. But in that, look at the Bible says, accurately handle the word of truth. Accurately handle the word of truth. Handle God's word rightly. Do not read things into that shouldn't be there. And he adds to this the things that are good for a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. For it will lead to further ungodliness. What's worldly and empty chatter? Things that don't have to do with following the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they're derailing things. They derail your wife. They derail your children. They derail your your job and your ministry that God has given you. Stay away from that stuff. The world loves empty chatter, man. They love, that's what they, they, they just breed on that stuff. That's where their life is about. We are not to engage in those things. Verse 17, and their talk will spread like gangrene. You know what that is. We don't see it a whole lot anymore. You start losing limbs fast. Among them, and Paul doesn't have a problem identifying people who are unrepentive. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection, this is another lie that gossip that got into the church had already taken place. And they have upset the faith of some. Verse 19, one of my favorite verses in scriptures, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having his seal, the Lord knows those who are his. 
And those who are his, he says this, everyone who names the name of the Lord is sustained from wickedness. See, this is a follower of Jesus. What does God consider wicked? We need to know that. What are things that are not of God? And if you're saved and you have the spirit of God within you, you know things that are not of God. That spirit of God goes, hey, I'm in here. Don't take me there. Don't engage in that conversation. Stay away from that. Our, God, our job, Spirit of God speaking to us, is to exalt the Son by our lives. We're supposed to be following Him. We're not supposed to be following that, or that, or that, or that, or that. Our job is to follow Him. Follow the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to show you what Peter tells us about suffering and following Him. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Because every Christian must learn to submit to Christ's plan for his life, for his or her life. And Peter has suffered greatly. He is going to suffer more greatly and he's preparing the church before his death to learn to suffer for Christ. Probably one of the best passages I love in 1 Peter on suffering for the, for the glory of the Lord and trusting that God's plan is verses 12 of chapter four and down through the end of the chapter. It reads this way. Beloved, that's a term for the chosen of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at fiery ordeals among you which come upon you for your testing. Boy, Peter knew that. He knew what it was like to be tested. As though some strange things were happening to you. I've said this, I don't know how many people I know walked in my office and said, Pastor, I don't know why these things happen to me. Well, I got a verse for you. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ. See, when we start looking at our suffering, the things that are coming to our life as part of following the Lord Jesus Christ, there is now a sharing in his suffering. Paul said in the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, says, I fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. Meaning, Christ suffered to a point, of, he died, was buried, was resurrected, ascended, and we pick up the suffering, Paul says, from there. Not to gain salvation, but the result of following him, some will suffer more. But he says, look, to the degree that you share, there's a degree that we share in the sufferings of Christ. Because we're followers of Christ. That's why he said, you, you know, that if you're going to follow the master, if you're a slave, you're going to follow the master, you're not only going to just stay a slave, you're going to be like the master and you will suffer like the master. Now look at the rest of the verse. Keep on rejoicing. Uh-oh. Well, I'll suffer, but I'm not going to be happy with it. No, suffering brings joy when it's done for the glory of the Lord, when we follow him. Keep on rejoicing. Here comes a purpose statement. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. When Jesus shows up, no matter what you've gone through, you're gonna be so joyful in exalting him when he comes because you kept your eye on the prize. And he's glorious to you. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. That happens, doesn't it? Now, don't be reviled for doing something stupid. You, you will be reviled if you stand up for Jesus. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Isn't that a beautiful verse? If you stand for the Lord Jesus and somebody rejects it and they call you some kind of name or kick you to the curb, the Lord says, look, I'm resting on you. Oh, I need to hear that from time to time. It reminds you, okay, you're on a good trail here. 
Verse 15, make sure none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler, i.e., I said stupid. Right? There's it is. Don't do worldly things. Don't suffer for that. That's not true suffering. But verse 16, 16 but, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. He's, Peter's learning all this stuff, and he hasn't died yet. He, he's learning this, and he's teaching it to the church. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You think your suffering's bad? Wait till those who reject Jesus and stand before him and he is their judge. Oh, let's take the suffering. If God asks us to suffer for the name of Jesus, let's take that. It is never in comparison to those who reject him. And I don't go into suffering and say, bring it on, Lord. I'm kind of like Peter. What about that guy? But we learn to accept it and say, Lord, I know you'll bless me. I know you'll get me through this. Look at verse 18. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, because it's hard, what will come of the godless man and the sinner? See, the, the man who is claimed righteous is not easy because he has to deny his own righteousness. He has to lay aside all his works. It's hard to come to Christ. Because man can't do it on his own. He's dependent of God. The Bible says, just think what happens to a godless man and a sinner. Now here's verse 19, and this is the sum up of the statement of learning to submit to God's plan. Look at this. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. You say, well, I don't know if God's in my suffering. Well, if you're suffering and you're doing it for his glory, it's according to his will. Now notice this, this is how you get through it shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Oh, when you suffer, say, God, here's my soul. I'm gonna trust this to you. I, I'm, gonna do, I'm gonna choose to do what's right according to the word of God, not according to Scottology or whatever urology you wanna hold to, but according to the scriptures, I'm gonna choose to do what's right. And Lord, if it's your will that I suffer for that, I'm gonna entrust my soul to you. Don't tell me Peter didn't have to do that hanging upside down on a cross. Lord, I'm doing this for your glory. I entrust my soul to you. Maybe that was his last words. I don't know. But each Christian must learn to say, God, I accept your hand, what you have given to me. I accept from the hand of God what you've given to me. Good, bad, difficult. I accept it, Lord. Finally, let me go back with one more thought into John chapter 21. The last few verses of John are very precious. This is the disciple, John speaking of himself, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. See, John wants us to know, I watched these, I witnessed them, and I wrote them down. And we... Those who are there with me know that, the, that his testimony is true. So it's a declaration to the truth of Scripture that you can trust it. Verse 25, and there also are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. 
under the inspiration of the Spirit, John records selective chosen passages for us. He doesn't record everything. But his goal is to record material and events that clearly illustrate that Jesus is both Messiah and the Son of God. So the Bible, here's our last thought, the word of God reveals to us what God wants us to know about him. He knows exactly what we need to know. Surely we know that this does not contain everything about God, but that's what eternity is for. You and I that know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we will spend eternity knowing the Almighty. All forever. You go, well, isn't heaven going to be boring? No, heaven will not be boring. I tweeted out a post from Piper this week that just said, he is, he is infinite, so he is never boring. He will, he, we will be enthralled with him for all of eternity. And I think these verses just give us a little bit of taste of that. That he just gave us a little bit what would happen. And John says, look, if, if we wrote down all that he did and all of the results and everything, if everybody felt and touched and all, all that took, the world wouldn't have enough room for the volume of knowledge and detail that Jesus did in these three years. And it's a statement to help you realize there's so much more. Now here's what I thought deeply on it was, it's a little disturbing. I thought, well, what about people who did see that? What about the Jews? What about Judas? We only have a little bit of his life. In fact, the majority of the gospels that are recorded are the last week of his life. And many, many people saw him turn water to wine, feed them with five loaves and two fishes. He, he, he watched them do things that were amazing, healing people and raising the dead. And he did things over and over, casting out demons. The demon world bowed to him. They, they were totally submissive to him. He had control of all things. And yet in the end, they rejected him. I, I thought deeply about that. Those people are going to stand before God someday. What are they going to say? Well, we just weren't sure he was God, so we killed him. I don't think it lets us off the hook today, and I think probably even more so, because now we have a full canon. Scriptures, complete, all that we need to know. New Testament's a commentary to the Old Testament. We have far more than they even have on understanding the oracles of God, what his word has to say. And when we share it with people, they're accountable for it. And you and I are accountable for it. And I think it's a rich, rich history now that we have. And, and we, we as moms and dads, I want you to think about this, moms and dads, grandparents, we now have the responsibility of taking the word of God and extending it to our offspring. We have to teach them to love the word of God. Otherwise, they're going to love the world's wisdom better. And you're going to raise them and kind of dink around with the scriptures and then they're going to go off to some university and they're going to tell them there's no God and they're going to abandon the faith and walk away. I've seen that happen too many times. See, we have a responsibility. And I think that's what John is about. And let me tell you, just real briefly, these men did not fail. These 11 went on and they became men that the Bible says in Acts 17 that when they wanted to kill 
um, Paul and, and a few guys, Jason and some other guys were hiding them out. They were wanting to kill him. And they said, why are you trying to kill him? He says, because these men, these apostles, have set the world upside down with their teaching. Acts 17, 6, read it. It's a beautiful text. These guys knew they were going to die. And they said, we're going to go turn the world upside down. And they did. And so that's the book of John. And let me close with just some questions to ask you. That fitting for John. What about you? Do you want to turn the world upside down? Do you believe and do you see Jesus as the Messiah, the sent one from God? Ask yourself that question. Do you see him as a Messiah? Is he the sent one from God? Do you believe Jesus to be that? Because that's what the book of John's about. Do you see and believe Jesus to be the son of God, the second member of the Trinity? Do you see him as God, fully God? Do you see and believe Jesus to be the I am God, Yahweh? Because that's what John is about. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. We beheld him, we saw him, we touched him, we feel him, John says in 1 John chapter 1. We knew he was what he said he was. Do you bring him to, believe him to be the bread of life that he can feed your soul? Do you bring him to be the light of the world that he can plunge through the darkness of man's dark minds, dark hearts, in a darkened world? Do you believe him to be that? Do you believe him to be the door, the only way into heaven? The only way to the Father, do you believe him to be that? Do you believe him to be the good shepherd, that shepherds your soul who gathers, he speaks and you hear him and you come to him? Do you believe him to be that good shepherd? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? That when your faith is put in Jesus Christ, though you die, you live? Do you believe that Jesus alone does that? Not Jesus plus the church or Jesus plus something else. Jesus alone can resurrect you and give you eternal life. Do you believe that he's the way, the truth, and the life? There's no other way except through him to the Father. He's the truth, that truth, not a truth, the truth. Do you believe he's the vine? And we are plugged into him. And if you're not plugged into him, you die and they throw you in the fire and burn you up. Because that's what John, Jesus said and John recorded it. Do you believe him to be the vine and we are the branches and we're plugged into him and we don't have life outside of him? Do you believe that? Is Jesus your Lord and your God? As Thomas said in the last chapter, my Lord and my God. That's the book of John. Read it. We've ordered almost 400 copies of the book of John. We're anticipating lots of kids. Every kid will go home from VBS with a book of John in their hands. Because we believe the message of Jesus Christ is clearly contained in this book, let alone the entire Bible. So pray with me that God will use that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this study. Lord, I, I feel probably most blessed in a way, Lord, that you allowed me to study just verse after verse after verse and see your son in such glory. I pray, Lord, that came through as we taught this through these last three years, that Jesus is beautiful. He's glorious. He's God. And he's the I am God. And Lord, he alone can bring us to you. Lord, I beg that that truth came through. Lord, forgive me when I overshadowed it in some other way, Lord. But Father, we want to see this as we close this book out. 
We thank you that Jesus is the name above all names. There, there is no other name that a man can call on and be saved. That was the apostle's message. And so Lord, we call on your name and thank you for salvation. Lord, I beg you for anyone in the room who doesn't know you. Maybe they've flirted with you, they've, they've dated you in some way, Lord, but they're not, they're not tied to you, they're not committed to you, they're not followers of you. I plead with, their, plead with you to save their souls even now, Lord. Bring them to you. Bring them to you in a glorious way where they know it was Jesus. They know there's no other way but him. Lord, I plead with you for those of us that claim Christ that we get often off track. We should be better followers, Lord. We should follow the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what the cost, Lord. The cost was so great that he gave so we could walk behind him. And so, Lord, may we do these things diligently for your glory. Lord, hear our last song to you today. Your name is greater than any name. And we know your name saves us, Lord. Jesus, it entails all of who you are. So hear us as we sing. In Jesus' name.